Welcome everybody to episode 91 of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I'm your host and fellow Metallica fan. My name is Brandon. On this episode, I do a deep dive into Ride the Lightning with my good friend Scott Haskins, the host of Haskincast. In fact, he recorded this audio. Uh, this was intended for his show, and he is nice enough to let me. He's being nice enough to let me borrow the audio and release it on my feed as well for an epic crossover. Uh, because he was surprised to find out after four years or whatever Metallicast, I've not yet done a deep dive into Ride the Lightning, one of my top three favorite Metallica albums to date. So uh, consider this the official Metallicast deep dive. Um, and I mean, we intended this to be a single episode, a single episode of his shows usually anywhere between 30 to 60 minutes. Um, but you know, there's a lot to say about this album and we had a great conversation. If I do say so myself, we ended up talking for like three hours. So instead of releasing one three hour episode, uh, Scott was wise enough to put it into four parts. So this is part one and, uh, you're going to get the next three parts, uh, for the next, over the next three Wednesdays. So, Four weeks in a row, new Metallicast, new Haskins cast, all of it a deep dive into Ride the Lightning. If you've not checked out Haskins cast, please do so. Check out the links in the episode description. Also, give Scott a follow on social media. He's a great guy, extremely knowledgeable, puts on a great show. Um, he is no stranger to Metallicast. I, I did a wonderful episode of his Uriah He podcast, The Magician's Podcast. Um, and he was also kind enough to be a guest host during my Friend of Misery uh, series when I was out on paternity when my second child was born. Um, and he actually spoke about his love of Ride the Lightning, his personal favorite Metallica album on that episode. And now here we are doing a three hour or so deep dive into this masterpiece, this absolute metal classic. Um, before we jump to the episode, let me do some... Uh, plugging in my own please give metallicast a follow on social media at metallicast spot on facebook twitter and instagram please leave a positive five-star review in apple Podcasts. all that goes a long way in helping the show continue to grow and if you'd be so kind bison my favorite one-man band the man who does my intro music check him out click on the links in the description support bison i think that is everything I need to get through for this week. So without further ado, here is part one of Scott Haskins and I talking about Ride Lightning. Actually, that's a, that, that is a little bit of a lie. In this part one, we talk a lot about Metallica. We talk a lot about our love of Metallica and Ride the Lightning. The actual deep dive into the album will start next Wednesday in part two. But this is a great uh, in conversation nonetheless all of it is great um, I, I think if you are fans of his or fans of mine or fans of both of us you will definitely definitely enjoy so here's part one of our deep dive into ride the lightning oh yeah <laughs> Hello, ladies 
ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I am not alone today. I have one of my good friends here to review Ride the Lightning by Metallica, one of my all-time, all-time favorite albums. And this, I'm sure, is the album that has a song that caused Lars Ulrich to maybe go insane. We're going to figure that out. But first, let me introduce my co-host from Metallicast. We have Brandon. Brandon, how are you? Scott, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be on your show talking about my favorite topic, Metallica, my all-time favorite band. And, you know, I was saying before we started recording this that uh, even though I'm the host of Metallicast, so obviously a Metallica podcast, and we've done deep dives into songs and even albums, Ride the Lightning, um, there's been no deep dive on this album yet on my show. So, uh, I, I've talked about the album, of course, over the last several years on and off, but we've not I've not sat down with somebody like yourself and done it proper justice yet. So I am super excited to jump into it. Well, I'm honored to I, I was kind of shocked when you told me that. And I, I thought about it and I thought, I don't remember actually hearing a Ride the Lightning episode, like just one just dedicated to that album. And when you mentioned that, I thought, wow, that's really cool that we're going to get to do this together, considering you've got your own whole show on this band. Yeah, we've done. I did an episode on in the one of the first few episodes I ever did was a deep dive into Master Puppets, because that is my personal favorite Metallica record. Um, and then um, we did a I did a, a a deep dive into Injustice for All and as well as the Black Album, where every week would be uh we focus on a new song sometimes i was by myself oftentimes i was with a guest to help me out uh but really those are like the three deep dives and and the justice of black on one kind of just worked out because you know it was an anniversary when we did it and so there's a lot of talk around those albums or there's a remaster around the corner or what have you but for some reason no reason in particular ride the lightning just has not happened yet which is funny because Ride Lightning is easily, easily in my top three favorite Metallica albums. Yeah, and, and for good reason. It's just magic from start to finish as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you mentioned the, the remasters. I have to say Metallica really, really does a great service to their fans. They don't just remaster an album. They remaster it with a six CD version. They give you live versions, video, studio cuts, all. I, I mean, they're... They really give you everything they can. I really appreciate that. Yeah, me too. And, you know, I I have mixed feelings about remasters themselves because I feel like so many artists do it just as a way to re-release an album, make some extra money. And, uh, you know, prior to these massive remasters, Metallica never did a remaster. They never... You know, it, it, I, listen, I, I I love Ozzy Osbourne. I love Ozzy Osbourne. But I feel like he's done multiple remasters of those classic albums. And it, it like I can think of at least two different remasters off the top of my head. And there might even be third and fourth versions of it. And it, 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 there's so many bands like that. Or they have, you know, again, I love Iron Maiden. Do you know how many like live albums they have and how many best of albums there are? Like there's it, it, at some point it becomes too convoluted for me. So I like when Metallica does an album because I feel like 
they make it an event, they make it special and they do it right. And it's the same thing with the remasters. And like you were saying, they give you, if you're a diehard Metallica fan, there is so much there for you to sink your teeth into, whether it is demos or multiple uh, live shows from uh, the tour um, or, you know, in intensive booklets with pictures and notes and this and that. I, I mean, they really, really go all out for these remasters. And, um, and another thing I appreciate about them is that, they improve the audio quality, but nothing has changed about the album. The, the the original feel and sound of the record is intact. And I've talked about this on my own show. Again, Megadeth, a band that I love. But when they did those remasters, some of those albums came out sounding completely different mm-hmm. with different parts turned up in the mix, turned down in the mix, or a re-recorded vocal part. And I understand sometimes maybe was of necessity because they're missing this or that or whatever but that drives me nuts because then i feel like the original that i grew up with gets like lost in time you know and if you go on these streaming services apple music spotify there's so many artists where now it's the remasters are what's available to you Mm -hmm. and not necessarily the original mix so i appreciate the fact that metallica has kept the everything in place you know in there was a lot of um, talk around the Injustice for All remaster because everybody's like, are you going to turn the bass up? And they were like, no, we're going to release it with the same mix because for better or for worse, that was what we felt at the time. That's what we put out into the world. That's how everybody remembers it. And that's how it is. Yeah, you know, there's a couple things. There's the remix remastered albums, which they actually like they have the original multi-track tapes. They go back and remix it with modern technology. And right. uh, and usually, you know, it sounds modern. You know, it doesn't have that 70s or 80s feel to it that it had. Then sure. there's just the remasters where all they're doing is taking the the master track and actually just hitting the peak volume so that you're getting the maximum amount of audio that you can and I, I know that when they started transferring to CD in the beginning, they didn't know how to make it work on CD. They just flat transferred everything and it sounds awful. So those original remaster versions that came out, like if you if you find a Metallica remaster and there's just eight songs on Ride the Lightning, I don't get it. Like, <laughs> just don't bother, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, but that's a big difference. And I think that Metallica seems like they really want to preserve the integrity of what they put out originally and say, look, this is the album as it was. We're going to give you a little bit more sonic quality because we can boost the volumes a little bit more now, or we can give you a little bit more clarity, but we're really not going to mess with the character of the album. And I think that's important because back then, especially the studio sound was part of the album. Nowadays, it, it pretty much all sounds the same because they're all using the same plugins and the same you know algorithms sure, and that. Right. But you look at the first few Metallica albums and every one of them had an individual personality that part of that was the sound of the studio and the sound of the recording. Um, I don't think that's as important anymore. But certainly back then, if they were to try and remix all these on modern, you would lose that. And that's such a huge thing for those albums. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And uh, it made me think of a, um, my show I had. Um, there's this great uh, doom metal band 
called Crip Sermon. And I had uh, the vocalist and the guitarist uh, on my show a couple times. And I believe it was the guitarist who said, I believe he said that Ride the Lightning was his favorite Metallic album. And he said, when you look at the album cover, it looks how the album sounds. And I thought about that for a moment. And I, I know that sounds vague, but it made a lot of sense to me, like just the, the color scheme, the imagery, it all works together. And I think that ties in with what you're saying, where it has this unique character about it. That's different than Kill em All that came before or Master of Puppets that came after. It has this unique character to it. And if you come in as, you know, an almost 60 year old with 40 years of experience and mess with, uh, the magic and at times the innocence of an early record like that, because you think, Oh, well, I have all this knowledge now I can do it better. Maybe you can do it better, but better is not always best. (laughs) You know, that's a really good point. I think we tend to look at technology as something that's going to make things better. And I don't necessarily think that's the case. I love songs from the 60s. I love the way they sound. I love that mono touch that they have to them. I love the rawness of some of the instruments. There's a couple that the mixes drive me absolutely nuts, but that's because I'm an audio engineer, you know? But apart from that, I I love that they feel like they came from that era. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And if you you play a song from Kill 'Em All, and then you play a song from Ride the Lightning, and then you play a song from Master of Puppets, they sound like they come from three completely different recording sessions. But if you play anything from Ride the Lightning, they all sound like they came from the same session. They have that same character to them, which I really like. And I heard that they went to uh, the same studio that Rainbow recorded uh, Down to Earth at because they really liked the sound of that studio. Does that ring any bells to you? That sounds vaguely familiar. I know that it was um, at least mostly recorded in Denmark, the home of Lars Ulrich. I think some of that had to do with, um, you know, cheaper studios out there than in the United States. And at that point, you got to think, you know, they have a bigger budget than they had on their first one. But there's still, you know, these young, scrappy metalheads trying to work on a finite budget um and uh some of which was i'm sure being spent on alcohol so (laughs) oh no not at all well you know and and i i have to say i do love the sound of kill them all i mean it does have a low budget let's let's just clean everything up by washing it and reverb kind of feel to it but i love the sound of that album because that being an origin album uh, I love that it sounds a little more raw and a little less polished. I think that's a great starting point for a metal band, really. And I think you have to take a look at Kill 'Em All in order to really appreciate what they did on Ride the Lightning. Because Kill 'Em All, you know, their debut album, it was a statement in the metal world. And it was something fresh and new for a lot of people. It was kind of introduced everybody to this new subgenre of thrash metal and, you know, took what people had heard before Black Sabbath and, uh, you know, the Ramones, but mixed it together. And with a lot of sensibilities of new wave of British heavy metal, like the technicality of a band like Iron Maiden, uh, the speed and rawness of a band like Motorhead and, you had this great statement. And when you listen to that record, 
it sounds like Metallica more or less, but it sounds like uh, an immature version of everything that came after. And you listen to the musical compositions and they're not bad by any means. I, I, I do not want to, I, I do not want anybody listening to think these criticisms is a knock against his record because I love the album. And it's a very important album in the history of heavy metal. Well, if BuzzFeed but, is listening right now, our headline is that Brandon said that Metallica's <laughs> original songs. <laughs> you know what? I will take a BuzzFeed headline. So <laughs> there you right go. Right away. Ryan Bagara, um, if you're listening. <laughs> but I think, you, you know, when you, that's that to me is a statement record. And when you listen to, you know, uh, a musical composition like from Phantom Lord or No Remorse. It, it's a nice preview to, in my eyes of what they would do after. Um, and when you look at like, you know, some of the lyrics are, it's definitely some of their silliest lyrics. Trust me, they're fun to sing along to. But when you look at Hit the Lights, you know, when I start to rock, I never want to stop again. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you would never... You would never hear James Hetfield write and sing that vocal on pretty much any other Metallica album that followed. You know, it just—I I have to think he was like sitting in algebra class and just like writing lyrics, and as opposed well, to like totally, really sitting you know, down. And, but but you're right. There is a—I don't want to say an immaturity to to that because I think it was just youth. I think it was like let's sure. let's try and figure out how to write songs and what do we want to say and how do we want to play them. And I think once they really established themselves with that album then they were able to take the next step as writers, as performers, their production, you know, jumped up in value. I think it was, you couldn't have every other album they did without Kill 'Em All. But when I, when I listen to those songs in comparison to everything that came after, I do feel like this is a band that's starting out. This is a new genre that's really just kind of figuring out what it wants to be. And by the time they got to Ride the Lightning, they're like, now we know what we want to do. Now we've, sure. we've had some yeah. real gigs. We've, we played a lot of places. We've, we've been in the studio doing some serious recording. Now we see everything from a different set of eyes and have the experience to go to the next step. Totally. When I say the word maturity, I, I mainly mean it from compared to what comes after. Oh, yeah. And when, when you listen to Ride the Lightning, there is a huge musical growth. Um, and I, I'm hard pressed to think of a band, uh, that makes such a huge growth from album one to album two. Uh, usually when you look at the catalog, you see this growth happening over a few different albums, right? Right. But they made a gigantic jump from album one to album two, a, a jump that, uh, you know, was never significantly made the same way again. And Ride the Lightning, I think can be argued, is their most important album from a songwriting standpoint because to kind of back up what you were saying, Kill 'em All sounds like Metallica, but Ride the Lightning is sort of the blueprint that a lot of Metallica albums that followed would use and they do so many new things, whether it's more mid tempo stuff, more groove oriented stuff, more ballady stuff. 
that would become such a staple to their sound that I think it's really the first album they come out with that sounds how everybody views Metallica sounding. It has that classic Metallica sound. I think truly for the first time from start to finish on record. I would definitely agree with that. And, and to further that point, you can look at Master of Puppets and definitely see the blueprint came from Ride the Lightning. 100%. And, you know, Master of Puppets is my personal favorite Metallica album. I think that album is perfect from start to finish. But if I have to throw one criticism at it, it is that it plays as safe in the sense that it follows the blueprint that was established on Ride the Lightning. I think they take that format and they see how much farther they can take it. And I, in my personal opinion, perfect it a little bit more, but at the end of the day, it's the same format where you have, you know, thrashy opener, then it goes into more mid-tempo stuff. You have the ballad at, you know, track four, you have an instrumental near the end of the record but Ride the Lightning started all that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one more point on Kill Em All, too, that I think we would we would be remiss if we didn't mention it was that uh, to be fair to Kirk Hammett, he didn't write all of those songs. His his imprint is not on a lot of those songs as well. And certainly once Ride the Lightning came around, uh, he did have a heavy influence on the band. But a lot of those songs were written with Dave Mustaine. So there's another uh, contrast between Kill Em All and Ride the Lightning in the the writing and performance of it is that Kirk really started with Ride the Lightning. Excellent point. And I will add on to that by saying another key factor is also Cliff Burden because Cliff Burden and Kirk Hammett both played on Kill Em All, but both entered the band at a later time a lot of the songs that appear on kill them all were already established um they might have introduced a section here a section there but the the bones of that record were already established between hatfield ulrich and mustaine um but cliff burden he was a classically trained musician he he studied music theory took private lessons he listened to i now in 2022, I think the members of Metallica are very diverse, uh, are very diverse listeners. But I think in 1982, they were far less diverse with what they were listening to. And I think the reason why their interest grew more diverse is because of Cliff Burton, because he came at them with everything from Bach to, you know, jazz to uh, Leonard Skinnerd to you know, stuff they were listening to, like the misfits and things like that. So all the place from classical to punk rock. And he had a real sense of melody and perhaps more important than that for a band like Metallica harmony. And I think when you see what they did on ride the lightning, you can see that influence where now the songs are more diverse in sound you have a lot more melody and you have a lot more harmonies between the guitars happening. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, and I want to talk about that when we get into the first song, because it starts right off with a little bit of a classical feel to it. Uh, but before we do that, there's one other thing I want to, I think I, 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 I don't know how I feel about this. 
Uh, recently, the newest uh, season of Stranger Things came out, and Master of Puppets was a big part of the yes. final couple episodes of the show. I think it was the last episode. Um, I I found that so painful to listen to that horrible edit of such a fantastic song. And I thought, you know, these kids that are watching this show, because I, I'm sure that the audience is really varied in age. There's probably a lot of people that are not familiar with Master of Puppets. And that's the first impression they're getting of this song. And then they're going to go down to iTunes and go, what the hell is this? Mm -hmm. uh, because it, that edit was just, it was awful. Uh, what did you think of it? I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm assuming that you've seen it. So I've, I've not watched the current season yet, but I obviously know of it and I've seen the clip. Um, so, I, you know, I think it's great because um, edit aside, it introduces Metallica to new people. And the, you know, the Stranger Things made headlines because of Kate Bush. And all of a sudden, you know, they used her song. She's back at number one. She's, you know, I, I think I read something. She made like a couple million dollars, like just from her song being in Stranger Things. Um, and with Metallica, it's had a similar impact where, Master Puppets was number one on iTunes. Um, you know, they were trending on social media for days. And Metallica and their team, smart enough, like completely leaned into it. There was like a week, I feel like, where every post had been on social media was like hashtag stranger things. So like they completely took the ball and ran with it. And, you know, I so I think it was extremely beneficial for them. And, um, it, you know, there was, they, they made headlines too, because they, um, they, a few days later, they posted uh, a video online, a live version of master puppets. And of course they had all the hashtags, you know, stranger things and whatever. And it, it was very obvious that they posted the song because it was a talkable news item at the moment. And, um, they made headlines so because uh somebody commented on like oh i'm you know I, i'm paraphrasing but it was on the lines of like i'm a fan of metallica i'm so sorry you have to deal with like these bandwagon people coming over from stranger things and and metallica or whoever does their social media i'm sure it was not james hatfield sitting down at a computer <laughs> but i i'm sure it was a i i'm sure it could have been like a message from their team at least you know um wrote back saying uh along the lines of like it doesn't matter if you've been a fan for 40 hours or 40 years everybody is welcome and uh you know and, and i mean every and, and they made the point everybody has a different entry point right mm -hmm. and uh everybody has their own day one and you know there's i'm sure whoever is uh, uh i'm sure there's plenty of people from the early days of Metallica that would call me a poser because my first Metallica album was the black album. But when that, when that album came out, I was like in first grade, that was my introduction <laughs> yeah. to the band. You know, yeah. it, it, I was, how dare you I be was, born so late? Yeah, I was, I was one years old when master puppets came out. So yeah. Um, you know, I, I had some catching up to do and, but on Metallica one of my favorite questions to ask first time guests is when was the first time you heard Metallica? Because so you, 
the answers you get are span the 40 years. I've had guests on who, you know, saw their first show in 1982. And I've had guests who are like, oh, Death Magnetic in 2008 was the first Metallica album I ever owned. You know, everybody has a different entry point. And that's what's great about, you know, these bands have been around forever. Guess what? I was not alive in the 1960s, but I can still like the Beatles. I can still like the Rolling Stones. You can not have been alive when Led Zeppelin was around and still be a fan. Same thing with Black Sabbath and all these great bands. Like they're great bands for a reason. You can discover them at any point and become a fan. So if if your introduction to Metallica Master Puppets, which I think is the greatest Metallica song on the greatest Metallica album, is through Stranger Things, then God bless you. And I will say to the to the music editors of Stranger Things or whoever made the decision, that could have even been a writer's suggestion. Uh, great pick. I mean, talk about one of the most iconic metal songs of the 80s. I don't think they could have picked anything better uh, than Master of Puppets. I, I, as I was watching the episode, uh, and I didn't know about that ahead of time. So that was, you know, it was, it was a nice surprise for me. But I, I was just listening to the edit and I'm like, this just makes no sense. It was, it just hurt my ears the way they, that they assembled it. You know, it's, and I mean, it's so easy to do now because you don't have to deal with magnetic tape. You can do it in a computer sure. with very quick crossfades. Um, but it was just such a weird way that they displayed the song that it yeah. just, it just threw me off. And I'm thinking, oh, these kids aren't going to like this. But if it's your first time hearing it, you're not going to know any different. But you're right, absolutely sure. right. I mean, why shouldn't I just today be becoming a fan of the Beatles because I heard them for the first time? You know, I, I, I've right. never understood the ownership that people seem to take over their favorite bands. Like, well, I was there from the beginning, so I'm a better fan than you are. Who cares? If you like him, you it's, like him. If you don't, you don't. It's the same thing, especially in metal, where you have like, this is your band. Like, th this is your favorite band. But they better not make it too big. They better not get too popular. <laughs> and it's like, but that's the goal. Yeah. You and I'm like, all right. So all you people who called Metallica sellouts because they, you know, did the Black Album or whatever, became the biggest band in the world. It's like, but you, but, but now they've had a 40 year career, and you can still see them. Like, would you rather that album bombed and then they disappear off the face of the earth? Like, I like, you know, there's, you know. That you want your bands to be successful so they have a career. I mean, obviously, Metallica is a big example of that, but you know, even on a smaller scale, like if, if, if a band you like has to do a GoFundMe for every single album they come out with, that band's probably not going to last, right? Which sucks to say, you know, it's like it's at some point they need money coming in so they can sustain. Yeah, I don't want them having to work at 7-Eleven in the daytime and mopping floors and stocking cigarettes so that they can, you know, afford gear to go to their gig. I want them to be making money off their gigs and their merchandise so that they can go on tour right. and make another album, you know? Right, exactly. And, and another thing that people tend to do, I've noticed, is, uh, and, and it's usually not up to the band anyway, but a lot of times if their music is used in a like a film or a commercial or something, uh, and usually in, in a very poorly twisted way, they'll 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 call the band a sellout like i remember uh deep purple had smoke on the water was put into a burger king commercial and they were doing smoke on the whopper as the as the tie <laughs> i mean from a marketing standpoint for burger king that was brilliant you know you take one of the most yeah. famous songs in history tie it into your product great 
But when I talked to Roger Glover about it from Deep Purple, I, I said, you know, it kind of surprised me that that happened. He goes, we don't have any say so in that. That's all the publishers. And back yeah. then, I didn't know any better. You know, I, I was completely surprised by that. Sure, but, yeah. You know, of course, now I'm like, yeah, I, I, it's money people that make those decisions, not the band. So when when people say, oh, they sold out, they did this commercial thing or whatever, but people don't realize that a lot of those compilations, the best of the the things we were talking about earlier that come out, bands don't have anything to do with that. Not a thing. There are very, a surprisingly few amount of artists that actually own the masters and own the rights to their albums. But Talix actually does. They're very unique in that situation. Um, and so they have, that's something that they fought for in their career and they were able to get. And um, and good for them because like the Beatles, we've, we mentioned them. It, there's like a, a, at least a handful of people who own their their catalog and none of them are paul mccartney or ringo Starr, to my knowledge <laughs> right well you know? i think so didn't, it, didn't paul get a bunch back after michael jackson died i think he might have gotten some back but he doesn't but, own everything but a lot of times when you hear you know the beatles in a commercial it, that's not their decision or when you hear um you know any number of artists you know it, it's like you were saying it's not their decision but i would say this too um, the way the music industry has changed has forced the hands of artists to do more things like this. It has, you know, it, I, I remember growing up and being like, if you're, if your song was in a commercial, you were pathetic. You were not a real artist. And e even to a lesser extent, video games, you, you're going to put your song in a video game. For some reason, like, you know, movies were okay, but video games, no. You were like, <laughs> you like, how desperate for cash are you? Put your put your music in a video game. Or or even now, worse, you have your own video game like Journey did. Yeah. Or Aerosmith. Or that's right. Yeah, Aerosmith had one too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so but now, you know, there are record labels paying for their artists to be in video games because it's the biggest entertainment industry you know like it, to have your song in you know the new madden game or whatever is a huge deal for yeah. artists mm -hmm. and in likewise you know commercials and that publishing money the in the that's how some artists can get by because guess what ladies and gentlemen all of us are not really buying albums anymore for the most part so if you want your favorite artist to make money, they might have to sell a few cars with Ford. Okay. You're <laughs> like, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, I, I, and I, I understand people that, that are artists, especially that aren't at that level or don't have those opportunities, maybe don't understand what the reality of living at that level is like, you know, it's, it's your, your life is completely different. You know, you, yeah, you think that these people are billionaires and they just have all the money to do, but they also bought really expensive houses and they have to live up to that and, yeah. you know, all the things that go along with it. So it's like the the business gave them the opportunity to live a lifestyle, but they're not being supported by that business anymore because for the last two and a half years, bands haven't been able to go out and do world tours like they're used to. So they're not making money like they used to. And because so many people are streaming music instead of buying it, they're not making the money there either. 
you know, so it, it's yep. like merchandise is right now is really the thing. And that would include a lot of these new box sets and, and things that have come out. That's why we've seen such an influx of it, because A, people have had the time to work on it because they are sure. not on tour. And B, because they need they need something to supplement that tour life that they don't have. Yeah. You know, a couple of the bands that I know, uh, Deep Purple and Uriah Heap, both did uh, kind of, it was, it was like a fund me for our crew. They did these uh, crew t-shirts where all the proceeds of the shirt went to their road crew. Because not only is nice. the band yeah. not touring, neither are their roadies, the people that drive the trucks, the people that support them on tour, they're also screwed. But everybody just thinks about the band. Right. Well, that's the that's a great point, too. It's like, you know, you hear a song somewhere, or you see a band do something and you're like, do you really need a fifth house? It's like, well, what, a, what about the guitar tech? What about, you know... Um, like maybe their managers make a lot of money, but what about the people who work for the managers? They're making a normal yearly salary. You know, it, it's just another nine to five office job for those people. You know, there's, there's real people behind this, you know, it, it's, there's teams of people that make bands work, that make successful bands work, you know, and, and it, whether it's uh, Paul McCartney, Metallica, the Rolling Stones, Pearl Jam, Foo Fighters, any big band or outside of rock, you know, it, Beyonce, uh, Taylor Swift, be, behind any big artist is a whole team of people helping, keeping, helping keep the ship afloat. Right. And, and I think you about know? somebody like Alice Cooper, who has the most ridiculously intricate stage set I've ever seen. Yeah. I don't know how many people it takes to, to put that together and dismantle it and drag it to the next gig. But and that's got to be a huge support staff that he's got. And he's got a big band, too, on top of that, because he's got, you know, yeah. some characters that, that are, are in his show. Uh, but yeah, that, and, and I think I remember, too, when when the whole Napster thing was happening, I remember people making that point, like, don't they have enough money? They don't need the money. It's like it's not about the money. It's about people just taking their music and doing whatever they wanted with it without any kind of consent. And I think that was a big part of why people were against uh, Lars in that argument was because they were just thinking about the money side of it and not so much about what, what the real issue was. I remember seeing um, I was in high school when Napster happened. And, you know, when I went to school with my Metallica T-shirts on, I every day was like a Napster debate, you right. know, and uh, and I remember during that time seeing uh Lars Ulrich on the I think it was the MTV Video Music Awards he came to like present an award and he got booed. People were really? booing him. Wow. Um and it, and you know I what they did was aggressive and I I think the band now would even say they've said in interviews yeah it was aggressive maybe it was not the the best way but it was our way when we felt it, what was right at the time. And when we look at what has happened to the music industry, they kind of had a point because, you know, now, yes, we have legal streaming services, Apple Music, Spotify, and as a consumer, they are great. I subscribe to Apple Music. I, I still will buy physical for certain bands. Like when Metallica comes up with a new album, I will buy a physical album. But like, 
I have my cell phone right here. I'm holding it up for all you audio listeners up there. Like, <laughs> right. and, just, um, just to confirm, he did hold up his cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember being a teenager, right? And if I went on a road trip, uh, I was bringing my disc man, which means I had a duffel bag filled with CDs. Because I there were about, you know, 10 to 20 albums that I refused to live without for <laughs> a weekend or a week, you know? And now I have all the songs in the world on this freaking cell phone. So, I mean, it, as a consumer, it's great. But as an artist, you're not getting paid that much money. Even if you are, you know, top of the heap, you're not making that much money for the streaming services there. So, you know, I think the music industry, they have to figure this out somehow, some way, and come up with some kind of happy medium for everybody where the consumers win and the artists get more than what they're getting. But when you look at how everything's changed, uh, you know, I think there was a, a real point to what they were doing. There definitely was. And, uh, you know, it, it, I remember uh, an interview with Kirk Hammett very, fairly recently where he said, look, we were right. You know, you may not have yeah. liked it at the time, but look where we are now, you know, yeah. and, and I remember, uh, I remember that I, I think I understood it pretty quickly, you know, why they were doing it, because again, it was, it was not, yeah, the money's important and they have a right to it. But I mean, just because you have a lot of money, should you just say, oh, well, do whatever you want. I have enough money. I'm good. Like, who's going to do that? But it wasn't right. even about the money. It was about, you can't just take our copyrighted material and do whatever you want with that's why we have a copyright office you know and and what does that mean for a band that is not on their level a band that's just starting out you know it's like so young bands that do not have um you know a a, a name to rely on a brand name to rely on they have a lot of work ahead of them if they want to truly make it you know it, it, the pro and con of the internet is that it's very easy to get your music out there and it's very there's a lot of different ways to get your music out there but the con is there's a lot of ways that a lot of bands do the same thing you know it's the same thing with the podcast right everybody has a podcast and so it's like how i'm sending my podcast out there Maybe people listen, maybe people do not. You know, it, it's like there's a million podcasts to choose from. There, it's a million platforms for me to get my content out there, right? But it's like to stand um, apart from people, it's very difficult. So, you know, there's pros and cons just like there is to, to anything, but it's very hard to monetize if you're a, any kind of content creator right now, less if you really are able to truly break through and become... Um, you know, somebody who has a generally large following. Yeah. And even some of the artists that I know that are, have been very successful, I've asked them out of curiosity, if you were just starting out today and you didn't have your history of the bands that you've been with or, or your hit records behind you, you brand new artists coming on the scene today, how would you break through the noise? And every one of them says the same thing. I have no idea. Yeah. You know, but I, I do know that because I, I I'm a member of, of ASCAP and I do know that ASCAP and BMI are are constantly trying to fight this battle of the, the value of music through the streaming services. I understand the streaming services point. And this could be a whole nother episode, but I also understand the artistic side of it because I do have my music on those services. 
my hope is that people will take a service like that and treat it like we did the radio back in the day, where you hear a song on the radio, you're like, hey, this is really good. I'm going to go out and buy it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to yes. take care of the artist because I love this song. I want to take care of them so that they're around to make another song. And that's, totally. that's, it doesn't happen a lot, I'm sure, in comparison to how often it does. But uh, that's, that's my hope is it like I look at like Spotify and Apple Music and all that. It's kind of a lost leader. I put my music up there hoping people will discover it. And then I hope that they, that they just buy the album. Or are at least willing to invest some money somewhere, right? Like buy a t-shirt, buy a concert ticket because I heard your album mm-hmm. on Spotify, you know? Yeah. But I think if you're not, if if there's an album you're listening to on a regular basis and you're not giving anything to that artist, you're you're doing a real disservice because that artist ultimately may not be able to make another album that you like listening to. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, if you, if you think about it, so I paid probably $10 for, for Ride the Lightning. It has eight songs. So you're talking over a little bit of, of a dollar per song. Uh, for me to play them on Spotify, they get like 0.0007 cents for each yeah. play. And, you know, because there's so much out there, it's not like I'm just putting Metallica on repeat and and just listening right. to to Call of Cthulhu all day, you know. So, yeah, right. there's there's a huge difference. And I mean, I, I, I would hope that Metallica at least is at the point where they don't even need to worry about it anymore. I don't know them. I don't know their financial position. We just assume that they're rich. But uh, who knows? You know, rehab is not cheap. They've been in and out of rehab, yeah. every one of them for multiple times. Uh, I mean, their lives are expensive. So, you know, yeah. it would be wrong for me to just go, well, they've been a really successful band. They do these huge shows. They're probably rich. We don't know. You have your wives and your kids, and trust me, families are expensive. Yes, they even are. when you even when you do not do much outside of day to day activities, families are expensive. Yeah, I, and, and try going to Disneyland. I mean, it's that's that's like you know you got to sell an organ just to to take a family yeah. of four to Disneyland for a couple of days. Yeah, uh, right. I don't have a family, but I will say that sea monkeys are also not cheap. so i think what i'm going to do is i'm going to break this into two parts and so i think i'm going to to, uh, end our first episode here i want to thank brandon for coming on the show we're going to have the uh the actual album uh digging into it next week uh but man i i'm so glad that we got to spend some time doing this i always love hanging out with you you're you're a great guy love your show it's actually the i've listened to a couple other metallica podcasts but i'm like it just doesn't have that same same passion to me that yours does. I, that's, I think, oh. why I really identify with your show because you're really passionate about the music. Thank you. I really appreciate that. There are a lot of metallic podcasts out there, like a lot, probably too many. Yeah. Um, but, um, but so I, I appreciate hearing that. And, uh, you know, I always love uh, coming on and talking to you and whenever I can. And because, you know, uh, you're one of those guys that I can just talk about music forever. Hence, this is now a two-parter, right? Which was not, <laughs> which was not a plan. But going into this, so. that's absolutely right. It wasn't, but yeah, that's the thing is, you know, we, we, I think we tend to see a lot of things about the business the same way, and that certainly helps. And we also have similar tastes in in music to to an extent, so that really helps too. But yeah, it's always great, you know, hanging out with you and talking. So we'll be back with our show next week. In the meantime, you guys have a great week and we'll see you. Take care. Cheers. Fans, non-experts.